0: God did not call me to preach. So I don't call this preaching. I call this speaking. And it's really, uh, oh, I really call it story time with Uncle Tanner, if you've ever been here before. Now, let me just say this. If you were here about three and a half years ago, you've heard this before. And if you have this in your notes, in your Bible... You are free to leave. But if you don't, well, buckle up, because you're in for the long haul here. Um, Like I said, Terry tried to get it done yesterday, and we just weren't able to make it quality and and get the point across, so you get me. And I know I'm a lot prettier than he is, I'm a lot shorter than he is, and uh, when I say shorter, I mean brevity, not, I mean, I am shorter than he is, of course, but. Whatever. All right, open your Bible to the book. And i am just tell you what. The first service, I don't think they cared at all that I was up here telling them a wonderful biblical story. So I'm going to need you all to be a little smile at me so I don't just quit and walk off and be like, all right, y'all go home and go get to the buffet. All right, here we go. Um, open your Bible to the book of Esther. Like I said, this is Storytime with Uncle Tanner, and this is a rerun. Anybody still watch TV Land or Nick at Night? Do they, I don't even know if they still have those shows, but those are all reruns. This is a rerun, okay? So like I said, if you had this already, see ya. But if not, here we go. There's a book that maybe you have heard of, or maybe you read it to your kids, called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, written by Judith Viorst. And the title of this book got me thinking, Okay, who had the worst day in Scripture? All right, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But let me. Uh, uh, but in case you've never heard the book or read this book, let me read a little bit of it. And here's here's how it goes. All right, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast. Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. And Nick found a Junior Undercover Agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I got was a breakfast cereal. And it goes on from there depicting uh, his horrible, no good, very bad day. So now I ask that question again. Who had the worst day in Scripture? And I don't think that there's any doubt that we would say, Jesus had the worst day of Scripture. When he was crucified on the cross, when God poured out on him our sins, the sins of the world, that was the worst day in Scripture. Fair point. But in turn, it also leads to our best day. All right. But that's such a Sunday school answer. You know, who had the worst day in Scripture class? Jesus. Give me my yellow sticker. You know, that's the Sunday school answer. So let's move on past that. Who had the second worst day? in scripture. And that's where a story time with Uncle Tanner kicks in. And I'm going to uh tell you about a man named Haman in the book of Esther who in my opinion had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. So turn with me to the book of Esther chapter 1. We got to get some background going. All right. Now, the book of Esther, every commentary I've read, they tell this story in story form. They tell this Bible story in story form. Even if you read it straight from the scripture, it kind of reads like an actual Bible story. And I don't know about you, but when, it's, when you're reading the Bible, it's easier to follow along when it's telling a story, if you're like me. You know? So, anyway, chapter one, let's get into it. There was a king named Xerxes. Everybody say Xerxes. Xerxes. Everybody say Xerxes. Xerxes. Hey! And he basically dominated the entire known world at this time, all right? He had 127 provinces stretched from the Middle East all the way to Asia, and he controlled all of it, all right? And so King Xerxes decides that he's going to have a big party, and not just a party, he's going to have a real big party, and it lasted for 180 days. And he opened up the treasures of the wine and uh, they had a banquet and they're having a great old time. And then once that had passed, they said, we're going to have a big, let's just do a bigger party. Let's have another party for another seven days. And they brought out more treasures of the wine and opened up everything else. So all these guys in the kingdom, all these, the king and his men are having a party. And so now they have been drinking for you know, six months and a week. And at the end of that, Xerxes gets this bright idea. He says, I'm going to show off my queen to all my men around here. And uh, the Queen Vashti, everybody say Vashti. Good. Vashti, now she is a beautiful, beautiful woman, so we're told. And um, I happen to think a lot of Queen Vashti. I think she's got a lot of good character because she says, she comes out and she says, "Uh, I am not about to appear before a bunch of men who have been drinking for the last half year not going to do it. And um, biblical scholars are um, divided on this. A lot of them think that the King Xerxes wanted Vashti uh, to come and appear before his court wearing her royal crown and nothing else. So I think a lot of this woman, she's like, no, they're drunk as a skunk. I'm not coming out here and parading in front of these, these men. No way. So... She, uh, she doesn't do it. She says, I'm not going to do it. And the wise men in the court, uh, the men of the times, as it says there in verse 17, men who understood the times, they came to King Xerxes and they said, Look, dude, uh, look, King, you've got a problem. If you can't get your wife to behave, how are we going to get our wives to behave? And that's a legitimate point. I mean, I'm just saying that's a legitimate point. Uh, anyways, moving on. Uh, so now uh, Xerxes, you know, he he takes into account what they're saying. Xerxes signs this decree that says that Vashti can't be queen anymore. He punishes her for disobeying the king and uh, he, he has gone away with Vashti. So chapter two. All right. Y'all still with me? All right. All right. Chapter two, we find Xerxes. He's probably sitting around chilling and he probably got defeated in a battle of some kind. And he's wandering around the palace and he misses Queen Vashti, you know, because she was hot and he was she was the prettiest girl that he had ever seen. And he's missing his wife. He's missing his queen. And he he knows that um, he's not a bad guy to be exact, because he could have had her killed for disobeying the king. But he didn't. He just he just banished her. But he's he's missing his his queen. And the, the people in this court are all like, um, you know, king, it's not good for you to be so mopey. In my house, we call mopey the eighth dwarf because sometimes our kids will act. a little, When they ask, can we do something? I say no, and they kind of mope around. I'm like, quit being mopey. You're not the eighth dwarf. So the king is acting all mopey, and he's kind of wandering around, and he wants a new queen. And so the, guy, the, the people say, you can't act this way. This is not very kingly. I have an idea let's bring in all of the pretty women in the kingdom. Bring them into the capital, and let's have a beauty contest. And then you can choose the one girl that you think should be your queen. And he's like, okay. This, the Bible says this pleased the king very much. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> so this is where we find another character that pops up in this story, and his name is Mordecai. Everybody say Mordecai. Good. And in verse 7, we find that Mordecai, who is a Jew, is standing in the court. And somehow, uh, he's been brought from where he used to live. Maybe he's one of the second generation, uh, a second generational Jew that was brought in from Babylon that we learned in the story of Daniel earlier in the Old Testament. We're not exactly sure. Mordecai is a Jew, and he is somehow involved in the court of King Xerxes. And Mordecai has a cousin, Whose parents have died, and now he has become her father figure. Her name is Hadassah. We know her as. E- Everybody say it together. We know her as Esther. Esther. So that's our story of Esther here. Um, we know her as Esther, and like I said, her parents are no longer in the scene. You can check that around in verse seven or so. Uh, Mordecai says to Esther, "You know, Esther, you ought to be in this beauty pageant because you're a pretty woman. I think you could be. You could do well in this pageant." Um, So Esther joins the beauty pageant. Now let me tell you, ladies, this is the beauty pageant beyond all beauty pageants. They take these women for a year and just pamper them with oils, uh, myrrh, uh, perfumes, whatever is good for them at the time. I don't know. But they get to take off a whole year and just be pampered for this beauty pageant. All right? And then, that's the first year, and then for, oh, that was the first six months, excuse me, and then the second six months, they pamper them even more with other stuff, spices, and ointments, and now, now think, about, think about that, women, let me talk to you for just a second. Who would take off and be like, yeah, I'll go for a year, and just, just be pampered, get my nails did, you know, smelling all good. I think you'd sign up for that, right? Are you, but are you saying your husbands don't do that for you at home? A lot of husbands are thinking, I'm going to have to go home and rub her feet, you know. Anyways, Anyways so that's, that's what's going on, a big, huge beauty pageant. And we find that in the middle of all this, Esther pleases the person who is in charge of all the women. She pleases the, the person that's in charge of the harem, right? And um, so then Esther starts getting the best perfumes, and she starts getting the best cuticle treatments. And she starts getting the best of everything because she's pleased the one in charge. And eventually we find out that she pleases the king and she becomes the queen. Now she is queen Esther. He selects her as his new queen. So she's gone from an unknown person in the kingdom to queen. Not a bad rise, right? So they have a great banquet. And somewhere during this time, we're finding out that in verse 10 there, that Mordecai told Esther something real important. She says, or he says, do not let anyone know that you're a Jew. Don't let them know that you're Jewish. And um, so this whole time she's keeping this secret through all of this, nobody. The king didn't know. Haman didn't know. Nobody knew that she was Jewish. And Mordecai is inside the king's gate standing around doing his job, which we find to be true throughout the entire story here. He's doing his job, and he finds out that two of the king's men, uh, the officers, are plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. And he's like, well, I'm not going to let that stand. Their, name, their names are Big Fan and Teresh. Everybody say, Big Fan. Everybody say Teresh. Okay, the second one was a little better. And by the way, if you're pregnant, don't name your kids Big Than and Teresh. I don't think that would go over very well, especially since they want to kill people here. You know? So anyway, Mordecai finds out about it, and he goes and tells Esther, and she's like, you got to do something. Esther tells the king in the name of Mordecai that this is going to happen. The king obviously believes his queen, and so he kills Big Than and Teresh. And the Bible says there in verse 23 that they hanged them. And more than likely, this is how it happened for these times. It's a big pole. They killed them. And then to show everyone what was going on and make an example of them, uh, they imp- they desecrated the bodies by impaling them on a big pole. And then they uh, put it out for everyone to see. Now that's a nice thought for church on Sunday morning, isn't it? Like this dead body hanging on a pole. You want to kill the king? This is what we'll do to you. You know, that type of thing. Anyway, so there in verse 23, it says that Mordecai's actions are recorded in the chronicles in in the presence of the king and remember that detail cuz that's important and so now we get to chapter 3 and you're wondering okay you've been talking too lot too much and you're fast and you're ugly get to the n- terrible no good bad day part well we're going to get there we just got to get a little bit more background okay so chapter 3 after these events king xerxes honors Haman who is an agagite and we'll find out what that means here in just a minute. The king gives um, him a seat of honor higher than any of the other princes. Uh, So in other words, there's the king and then there's Haman. He's number two. And Haman, you know, he's a guy. He's like, okay, I'm doing pretty well. I'm number two in the kingdom. You know, Uh, Haman is doing good. He rises to this place of power and he walks out and he sees Mordecai and he sees everyone else there in the courtyard. And, um, Because he's so powerful now, everyone bows down to Haman, except Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow down because he's a Jew, and he doesn't bow down before anyone except God. And this ticks Haman off. And this is where you need to know what happened way in the past. A real brief synopsis. We know that Haman is an Agagite, meaning he is a descendant of King Agag. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you find out that there was a time where Saul was supposed to put to death the Amalekites, and and they had King Agag. And the reason that the children of Israel were to be put to death... Uh, were to put to death the Amalekites was because earlier on, when Moses was moving all the children of Israel, the Amalekites were the one nation that attacked the children of Israel in spite of everything else that was going on, and God prophesied that they were going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Did you get all that? Good. All right. Your faces say this. Amalahu, What's an Amal? A gag. Ag- I mean, I'm about, I'm about to gag. You know. Anyway. All right. So I say that to say that this is a long seated. Hatred between two uh, ethnic groups here, two groups of people. Um, this is worse than the egg bowl, if you will. This is not old Miss, Mississippi State. This is a long, long-seated hatred. So not only is Haman mad at Mordecai because he won't bow down to him, he's mad at Mordecai because, oh, he's a Jew and I don't like Jews. And that's the arch enemy of Haman's people, the Amalekites of the people of Agag. So you see there is some long generations of prejudice and hatred that are here. And so then everyone else says to Mordecai that's in the court like uh dude, he's kind of a big deal. You should probably bow to him. And Mordecai's like, "No. I'm a Jew. I don't bow to any man. I only bow to God." And Haman hears about it and he says, "Hmm. I don't like that." So he goes to King Xerxes and he says, "Hey king, you got this group of people in your kingdom And they think they're above you, king. They think that they don't have to bow down to you, king. Because they won't bow before any man. So I suggest, you know, I think we should just, uh, I don't know, kill them. The king's like... Well, that's a valid point. Okay, you do what you got to do. I don't care. Here's my ring. He gives him the, the king gives uh, Haman the signet ring, and whoever has the signet ring can make the laws and put it on the official documents according to the laws of the Medes and Persians of the time, and it can never be done away with. So Haman now has this power, more power. He's got the ring. And he says, I will even pay for all of this to happen, king. That's how much he hated the Jews. He says, I will pay to kill all of them. The king's like, no, keep your money. Just, they sat down. They rolled the dice or whatever. They figured out a good day. And, and in December of that year, we'll have uh, a day to kill all the Jews. And at the end of chapter 3, we find out that all the couriers of the court went out, and they said, on this day, you can kill any Jew you want. You see a Jew? Kill it. It's kill a Jew day. Kill them. And um, it says that the king and Haman sat down to eat, but that everyone else in the city was kind of like, uh, what? 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 A new holiday? Kill a Jew day? What is this? What is going on? Chapter 4. And when Mordecai hears about this, he goes into the court of the queen and he tears off his clothes and he sits down in sackcloth and ashes, showing that he is in great mourning. And so Esther, the queen, sends a message out to Mordecai. She says, what's going on? Mordecai sends a message back. He says, do not think that this is not going to touch you. We are in great peril. So turn with me to Esther chapter 4, verse 14 in your Bible. Mordecai says to Esther, you have to do something. And here is the pivot verse for the entire book. This is the main foundational verse for the book of Esther for for us to understand what is going on in Esther. Verse 14, it says, For if you keep silent at this time, this is Mordecai talking. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, You're not going to, this is not above you. You're not going to escape this, okay? Who knows? Maybe you were brought to be queen. Maybe you entered that beauty pageant for this reason, to save your people. Who knows? This is your time. This may be precisely why you became queen. And Esther says, okay, what do you want me to do? So she says, I want you to gather all of our people. Gather in the capital, and for the next three days, I want you to fast, And I want you to pray. And all the people in my court are going to fast and pray as well. And then we're going to go to the king. But here's the problem, Mordecai. I've not been called into the presence of the king for over a month, she tells him. And it's against the law just to enter the courtroom without being invited. And if the king sees somebody in the courtroom that he don't want in there, he can have them killed. He can banish them, have them killed, put to death, whatever. And, uh, you know, Mordecai, I don't know what's going on in our marriage right now, but we haven't spoken in 30 days, so it's not like I can just pop in there and be like, hey, honey, you know, someone's going to kill me, you know. She's afraid that she'll be exiled or whatever. It's not looking good. She's she's not thinking this is going to look good. So she says, I have to pray about this. I have to fast about this. I want you to pray with me, and hopefully things will go well. So they do that, and now we get to chapter 5. So chapter 5, she puts on her royal robes, and she goes into the courtroom, and she stands there, and the king is sitting on his throne, and he looks out, and he sees Esther. And he beckons Esther to come. He says, Esther, welcome. Hey, baby, how you doing? And she's like, the implication here is that God has gone before Esther and prepared the way for her to enter the courtroom. So Esther goes up to the king and um, he says, What's going on, Esther? And she says, King, honey, I would like to throw a big banquet. And at this banquet, I want, here's the guest list, King. I want it to be you, me, and Haman. And now, more than likely, Haman is standing right there, because he's number number two in power, right? He's probably standing right there in the courtroom and he's like, oh, a banquet. For the king, and me, and nobody else. You can imagine his head just filling with uh, with pride. So he uh, accepts his invitation to the banquet. He starts thinking, "This is gonna be good." So they go to the banquet, and it was that night. It was Esther, king, and um, Haman. The king sits down at Esther's banquet that she's prepared, and he says, "Honey, what's on your mind? Why have you why have you called this banquet? What what's the purpose of this?" And she says, "King, if it pleases you." I'd like for you to come back tomorrow night, and let's do this again. Let's do another banquet. Just you, Haman, and me. So they eat, drink, they be merry, they have a great time, and Haman walks out of the courtyard after the banquet, and, you know, he's just full of himself. He's thinking, I'm in a good spot. I get to come back to another banquet with just the king, just the queen, and me. And he's full of pride, and he walks out of the courtroom, into the courtyard, and he sees everybody bow down to him, Except Mordecai. Poof, balloon deflated. Filled with anger. Everyone's bowing down to me except him. What the crap? Why won't you bow down to me? So he goes home and he gathers all of his family together. He's got his wife. He's got his ten sons. All of his friends. He gathers them around and he says, let me tell you about my day. So I'm just sitting there. Mind my own business. The queen comes in. She's not supposed to, but she came in, and she said to the king, I want to have a banquet. And here's the guest list at the banquet, honey. Oh, it's the king and me. That's it. Nobody else. Just me, the, the queen, and the king. It was a great banquet. And then I go to come home. I leave. I go out in the courtyard. Everyone bows down to me except for Mordecai. And You can just imagine anger fills his face. And his wife, the Bible says her name is Zeresh. Everybody say Zeresh. Okay, that was weak. Everybody say Zeresh. Zeresh. Okay, good. I feel like I'm losing you. Okay, Zeresh. Zeresh says, uh, honey, who's bigger in the kingdom than you? And he's like, oh, pff, nobody. Clearly, Did you, were you listening? The, the king, me, the queen. That's it. No one in the kingdom is bigger than me. And she's like, well, okay, then why don't you just kill Mordecai? Have him killed. And Haman's like, that's a good idea. I like that. I did you know? I like that. That's a good idea. So Haman says, "I'm going to go to the king and have Mordecai killed." So Haman uh, that night, uh, he's sleeping very well. He's uh, having the royal carpenters build gallows that are 75 feet high. So he wasn't just going to hang Mordecai. He's going to hang Mordecai. You know what I'm saying? 75 foot gallows. So he goes to bed. He's thinking this is going to be a great night. Hammers just just going. He hears it all going. Ah, banquet, Mordecai going to be killed. It's going to be a good day. But that same night, the king can't sleep. And what do you do when you can't sleep? You read history books. Who reads history books and you can't sleep? Anybody? Yeah, I didn't think so. Anyways, the king is reading history books. Well, he's not reading. He's having his people read them to him so he can go to sleep. Anyways, chapter 6. The king can't sleep. He commands the royal historians to come out, bring the scrolls, and they start reading the history books. And as he's trying to sleep, he's bored. He goes on most of the night, and he finally gets to that part in the history books where Mordecai tells about the plot to assassinate King Xerxes. And the king says, Hold on, wait, wait, wait. read that back, run that back. They were going to kill me. Mordecai told me about it. Did we ever do anything for Mordecai? And the historians looked at the scrolls like, no, we didn't do anything for Mordecai. Now, see, that was a big problem. Back in that day, for someone who uh, was helpful to the kingdom or whatever they did, they did something to honor them. That was just part of their culture, their custom. So he says, hmm, I wonder about that. So keep that in mind. Now Haman has woken up. And remember, he thinks this is going to be his day. Banquet, Mordecai dead, great day. All right. But we also find out that when Haman wakes up, what he thinks is going to be a good day turns out to be his terrible, no good, horrible, very bad day. He's so excited about having Mordecai on the gallows. He wakes up early before the dawn, and he goes into the courtyard, and he's standing there. And here's where, like if this was Hollywood, this is where the story collides, okay? So he goes into the, king, into, the into the courtyard, and the king says, uh, anybody in the courtyard? And the, the people are like, yeah, Haman's in the courtyard. He's like, "I bring Haman to me. So Haman comes in, and he's like, hey, Haman. What would you do for somebody? What do you think we should do to honor somebody important in the kingdom? I want to honor somebody. A big deal. What should we do? And Haman's thinking, well, who does he want to honor more than me? I'm number two. I've been at the banquet. He's talking about me. So Haman says, hmm. You know, King, here's what I would do. If I was in charge king and you do what you want to do but here's what i would do i would take a robe that only you have worn O king and i would put it on that person that you wanted to honor and then king i would take one of your royal horses one that only you have worn or worn one of the royal horses only you have ridden <laughs> sorry i'm tired okay I would take one of those horses that only you have ridden, and I would have someone, one of your servants, parade them through the town saying, this is what's done for who the king wants to honor. Sounds like a pretty good plan. So the king says, Haman, I like that. That's good. I want you to do that for Mordecai. Haman says, what the? Who? Who? Mordecai, are you kidding me? He probably cussed out loud if I'm just guessing. I don't know. I'm not going to do that here in the church house, though. So, Haman, you know, you see how it goes. Haman goes and gets the robe and he's like, Mordecai, come here. Here, put this on. Throws it on him, you know. Mordecai's like, okay. Here, get on this horse. You can get on it yourself. I'm not going to help you. Get on this horse. Mordecai's like, okay, all right. So Mordecai's got all the stuff going. Haman's going through town. This is what's done for the person the king wants to honor. This is what's done for the person the king wants to honor. And I imagine Mordecai probably kicks him like louder. This is what's done for the person the king wants to honor. Goes through the whole town. Everybody sees it. And Haman goes home after all that, just like he did the night before. And he gathers his family around. He's like, listen to my day. His wife's there. His ten kids are there, all his friends. He says, I had to take a robe and put it on Mordecai. I had to do this, this, this. And his wife's like, oh, we heard. You're the talk of the town, Haman. You done messed up. So Haman's getting ready, right? Haman's getting ready to go back to the uh, kingdom for this banquet, and he's not in a good place mentally, right? He's not so sure he wants to go to this banquet anymore. So he goes in, and it's the same guest list as the king. i got to wrap this up. The king, Haman, Esther, and as they're sitting down to eat, they actually would recline on a couch or whatever. They're sitting down, and Haman's just sort of picking at his food. You know how it is. Oh, today sucked. Oh, what's coming next, you know? Didn't want to eat. He went to sleep the night before thinking it was going to be a great day, and now it's a terrible day. Anyways, the king says, okay, I've had enough. I've had enough. Esther, tell me, why are we having these banquets? Why... Are we here? What are we doing? And Esher says, O king, there's someone out to kill me and my people. He says, who? She says, even if it were to be just to put us into slavery, O king, I wouldn't say a word. I wouldn't do anything. But someone is out to kill the queen and all my people. And the king says, who? And I imagine Haman's eyes got really big and Esher goes, him! Haman. And the king gets so mad, he storms out of the banquet, probably throws the food everywhere. Because the king knows I'm the one that gave him the ring. I'm the one that said he could do this. It's my fault. Well, it's a lot of his fault, but it's my fault too. So the king's out mad thinking, what am I going to do to Haman? What am I going to do to Haman? What am I going to do to Haman? And so back in the banquet, Haman is pleading for his life. He's in there with the queen thinking, please don't let him kill me. Please don't let him kill me. I got dead kids. I got a farm. Please don't let him kill me. Please don't let him kill me. And he is so agitated by this. Haman falls onto to Esther while pleading for his life. And as he falls onto Esther, probably making all kinds of motions, the king walks back in and he says, what are you doing on my wife? You can imagine Haman being like, oh crap, I'm going to die you know, so anyways, there's another guy in the courtroom there, uh, his name's is Harbinah, and he, you know, the king's like, what am I going to do with Haman? And Harbinah, little henchman is what I call him. He's like, uh, Haman has some gallows made because uh, he was going to kill Mordecai today. Uh, why don't you just hang him on Mordecai's gallows? You know, that's how I imagine it in my head. You can watch that back on TiVo when we get to heaven. So that's what he does. Haman is hanged, hung on Mordecai's gallows, That's a bad day, isn't it? That is a bad day. It just doesn't get much worse than that. So what does this all mean, okay? Here's a couple observations about Haman, and we'll get into it. First observation from Haman, our prejudices can kill us. Oh, but you're not prejudiced. Nah, I'm not prejudiced. All you teenagers, we're not prejudiced. Are y'all holding hands? What are y'all doing? I'm not prejudiced. You might want to check them out when you get home. Our prejudices can kill us. Except we're all prejudiced, aren't we? And these prejudices where we look at people and we stereotype them and we say, that's just the way they are. We need to, as Martin Luther King once said, judge people on the content of their character. Could it be that our prejudices, regardless of who they're directed at, whether it be culture, skin color, uh, social class, wealthy, poor, whatever it may be, could it be that we're killing ourselves? And if we're not killing ourselves, as Christians, we're for sure killing our own cause, and that is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second observation our prejudices can kill our families. What we teach our kids can kill them. And it may not ever come home to roost with us in our generation, but it might. Have you watched the news lately? What we teach our kids and the prejudices that we ingrain in them can set them up for failure. Because later on in the year, when that day came, and it did come in December, the kill the Jew day, remember that? When, when that day came, King Xerxes had made another law. He gave Mordecai the ring. He said, I can't change that law about killing the Jews, but you can write another law saying the Jews can gather and fight back. And when that day came, the Bible says that the Jews had a resounding victory against those who attacked them. And it says that among those who died, in chapter 9, verse 12, were Haman's ten sons. And when they were killed, they were put on the same gallows that killed their father. The prejudices that are built into the life of our kids can kill them. What do you say when you're at Walmart, maybe, and you hear another language being spoken? What goes through your mind? Or you see somebody of a different class or color that doesn't act the way you do. We have to take note of this. Anybody remember that old Andy Griffith show? The Andy Griffith show? Two people. Two people remember. You did good, Andy. You made an impression. Good job. Remember the, remember the Andy Griffith show? And There's the episode where Ellie is running for town council, right? And she is going to run for town council, and she has inadvertently caused a civil war in Mayberry. All the women versus all the men. And she comes home, she, or not comes home, she goes to Andy's house, and she uh, Andy has made some nasty eggs because he can't cook, and Aunt B has made a nice pot of stew, and Opie won't eat it because a woman made it, you know. And um, Ellie comes in, and she says, Andy, I've withdrawn my name as candidate. I'm not going to run for town council because I did not want to divide the town the way it has been dividen, uh, divided. And Opie says, does that mean we win, Paul? And he's like, yeah, I guess it does. And he goes, that's right. We put them women in their place. Us men folk don't want them women running our town. And Opie looks at him like, Andy looks at him like, "Uh, that come out of my kid? Did my kid just say that? Did my kid just repeat back to me what he has heard? How many times have you heard your kids repeat something that you said that wasn't so positive? I'm in that boat now, and let me tell you, it's tough. But when that happens, how do you feel? Our prejudices can kill us. That's a hard word to say, prejudices. But they can also kill our children. So now let's get to Esther and some application real quickly. First application, Esther started with prayer. When all of this happened, she said, fast with me gather everybody around and let's pray i think we're missing an important component in our lives when it comes to prayer and now many of you have heard me say this many times before i am not the one to teach you about prayer i've struggled with my prayer life from day one falling asleep get distracted thinking about tacos i get distracted okay i'm not the one to teach you about prayer But some of you are probably great individual prayers, and that's great. Keep that up. How many of you are enjoying our new Wednesday night format where it's just worship and prayer? Yeah. I've been in churches where sometimes that's not the case, coming together and really seeking God's face on behalf of our congregation. And this is something that weighs heavily on the heart of your pastor who's not here today, and that's trickle down into the staff here at the church where it's it's even evident in our staff meetings. Like 85% of our staff meetings, are, we're praying about uh, what can I pray for you personally? What can I pray for you in your ministry? Uh, What can I pray for you in this church? Are there people in this church that we need to lift up in prayer right now because they're going through hell? That's 85% of our staff meeting. And then 15% of the staff meeting is church work. But that's how important it is that we pray that we go to God and look to Him. Anyways, it's so important that we've decided to block out a whole service on Wednesday nights for just worship and prayer. And if, I, if I'm being completely honest with you, which I hate when people say that. I'm, let me, can I be honest with you? Oh, so you've been lying to me this whole time? You know, like, okay, whatever. But if I'm being completely transparent with you, our Wednesday night attendance kind of sucks. In a church that runs 400 people, because I get it, it's hard. you got lives, you got jobs, and then we want to come in here and pray for 45 minutes to an hour. It's tough. I get it. We would rather have another sermon, another worship night, another Bible study, another lecture series, video series, than simply come and, and pray. Do the religious stuff. But I invite you to begin to pray together. I hope if you don't already, start it in your connect groups. Keep praying individually. Keep praying with your devotions. Thank you for letting us, the church staff, be on your prayer list every day. Some of you pray for us every day. And that is immensely, uh, we're grateful for that. But let's come together and pray. Esther started everything with prayer. Big situation in life, pray. Big decision coming up, pray. I could tell you I'm guilty of not doing it. I'm sure you probably are too. Secondly, Esther risked it all. When you drive the nicest chariot in the kingdom, or you don't have to have a credit card at the mall because your husband owns the mall, she had a lot to give up. Just going into the room and asking him to change something, she could have been killed. She risked everything she had. We remember what happened to Vashti. She put it all on the line. She went from a nobody to the most important woman in the kingdom and she put it all on the line. So let me ask you, what are you putting all on the line for Christ? I don't think there's anyone in this room that would say if I go to job and I if I go to my work and my job and I profess Christ, I may lose my job. I don't think there's anyone in this room that can say I may lose everything if I just claim the name of Jesus. And thank God for that, honestly. But I'm telling you, there are a number of people around this world, Christians around this world, our brothers and sisters, dealing with persecution every day that we'll never understand. And yet they are willing for the cause of Christ to go to prison. To say the name of Jesus, they're risking everything they have. Esther also knew she could be put to death. Those persecuted Christians that are in jail cells around the world, we don't understand that. That's not how we are here in America, not yet. But it could be. We don't understand that experience. When the time comes, are we willing to speak the name of Christ, even though it could cost us our lives? I don't know if I am. I've never had somebody come up to me, gun to head, knife to throat, renounce Jesus or die. I hope I would be. I don't know. All of our brothers and sisters in places like China, North Korea, all those, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, all the other stands, putting it all on the line, they are living Esther's every day, day in and day out. I hope to be that way. I hope you're that way. And thankfully, I hope that I never have to find out, but I'm afraid that someday we will. Third application, final application, God knew where Esther was. Even when Esther was hidden, God knew where Esther was. Remember how Joseph was sold into slavery? Remember how Daniel was thrown into the lion's den? And God knew exactly where they were. And here, Esther is put in a place where no one would have ever paid any attention to her. And God knew where she was. You see, you are exactly in this point in time in your life where God has you to be. God knows your location. Because maybe your life has been like this. You've got questions. You've got doubts. You don't know if I even believe in God. I don't even know if this is for me. But for such a time as this, God has brought you to this place where you are in your life now. To where you can do something for the kingdom. And God wants to use you to do something for his kingdom. Every night when we pray, I tell our girls, I say, Sadie, God's going to do something big in your life. God's going to use you. I don't know when, don't know what, don't know how, but if you'll let him, God's going to use you. Hallie, God wants to do big things in your life. You're going to do big things for God someday. Pray that over our children every night. So what are you doing with your time such as this? Who is on your heart to pray for? Who is it or maybe what is it that God is wanting to reach through you? That if you don't stand up and get involved, you may miss your opportunity to partner with God. And I and understand the first part of that verse, in verse 14. God will deliver us, who knows, but whether for such a time as this you've been brought here. God's going to do what God's going to do, regardless of you. But He wants to use you. He wants you to accept His call. The question is, will I let him use me in the time that he's provided? I don't know what the heartbeat of your life is. I don't know where you are today. But I pray that it becomes a heartbeat in tune with the fact that you are who God wants to use right now. In your life, in your time right now, God wants to use you. So let me ask you this simple question as we begin to prepare for our invitation. Are you willing to say yes to God? God's calling you in some way. Are you willing to say yes to Him? Think about that. In this time, in this place, at your job, your school, are you willing to say yes to Him? Let's stand together and pray, church. God, I pray that you will use this story of Esther from a nobody to a place of power. Use this story to remind us, God, that you know exactly where we are. That you are with us. You've called us to be your child. God, that you want to use us. God, help us to open our hearts to you. Thank you for listening to the Sermon Playback Podcast from Connect Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. Connect Church has two worship services on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and 1030. We sincerely hope you'll visit. For more information and details, or if you have any questions you'd like answered, please visit our website at www.triconnect.church. Again, that's www.triconnect.church.